Hello, everybody. Welcome to Not Your Average Book Report, a podcast about children's literature where we believe in never losing the childlike joy of reading. My name is Sam, and I am not joined by Sarah today because we have a very special interview. We're about to be joined by our good friend, Rachel McKelvey, who is literally a Harry Potter professor. She has taught classes on Harry Potter at both the high school and the college level. She is currently an assistant professor at Moody Bible Institute, and she loves all things Harry Potter. This conversation was so fun, but before we jump into it, I do need to tell you there are spoilers ahead for anything after book five in the Harry Potter series. So if you don't want anything spoiled after the Order of the Phoenix, don't listen to this yet. Come back after you finish the books and then listen to this conversation because it really is a good, fun conversation. Rachel is such a blast, and we're going to jump into that interview now. Hello, everybody. I am here with my friend, Rachel McKelvey. Rachel, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. It's a yeah. good day, and I'm super excited to, you know, talk about Harry Potter. So yeah, can't yeah. Get much so better than that. You are a assistant professor at Moody Bible Institute, right? That's correct. Yep. But in the past, you have taught a, a fantasy literature course, right? Yes. Yeah. So I was a high school English teacher for a couple of years, okay. and that's where I first started teaching. We called it modern fantasy literature, okay. where we covered Chronicles of Narnia and Harry Potter. And then oh, I adapted awesome. the course. It was so much fun. Um, and then I adopted the course for a college level, and we called it rhetoric of fantasy literature. Okay. And, and that one, we just covered Harry Potter. But you couldn't call it a Harry Potter class. No. <laughs> no. So I taught at a very conservative Christian school. <laughs> Where, you know, witchcraft and all of that is right. highly dangerous. Um, but my my administration knew and they were supportive. They they knew Harry Potter and loved it. And so okay. we had to figure out a way to uh, make the class more palpable. palpable I think yeah. is the word I'm looking for. So, yeah, when you talk about fantasy literature, that can include a lot of things. And, yeah. and it worked out, especially with the high school class, because we did also incorporate Chronicles of Narnia. So okay. we did have another form of fantasy literature. Um, yeah, but I actually I was inspired because I took a class in college where we read uh, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Oh, okay. All in a semester. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I never got to do anything that cool in college. All I did was Shakespeare, which Shakespeare's fine, but listen, it, it was <laughs> it changed my life. That professor, he didn't take attendance. He only had two papers for the whole class, and no one missed a class. Really like he wanted to be there. What made it listen. so good? Just several things. So I guess his PhD was in. Ethics is what they're called. So he did his dissertation on Beowulf. Mm -hmm. And um, so he loves fantasy literature. And um, so just his love and his passion for it Mm. tied with uh, he really understood the the lore and the meanings and the symbolism behind a lot of things in Harry Potter that if you didn't grasp the first time and and even Lord of the Rings. But um, uh, even, you know, down to, I remember the first class, because I had never read the books until I took that class. And okay. um, 
he is talking about um, just this idea in, in chapter one of, you know, the Dursleys being perfectly normal, thank you very much, who didn't, weren't expected to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because mm-hmm. they don't hold to such nonsense. And it was <laughs> like, that 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 negates everything. Like, it, And it kind of like placed the Dursleys in this realm of like, if you don't believe in nonsense or anything, that takes away coincidences. That takes yeah. away any opportunity for like faith or otherworldly things mm. or aliens or any, and just like yeah. to kind of frame them in that perspective. And it's like, that's who they are. And then imagine Harry kind of growing up in that world. And yeah. um, even understanding, like, I remember we got to the chapter about Harry getting his wand and talking about the difference between um, Holly and uh, what was, I forget what Voldemort's wand was made out of. Um, you. Okay. So they have the same feather, but right. Harry's wand was made from a Holly tree and Voldemort's was made from a yew tree. And he was talking about um, the, the yew and the Holly produce very similar looking branch branches and berries. Mm. Um, so they both are green with red berries. However, a yew tree, the berries are po- poisonous to all woodland animals, oh my except for deer, except for deer. Are you serious? And so, yeah. So even just the symbolism of the fact that Aries Patronus was a deer and then like Voldemort's wand, the wood would kill every other animal except for a deer and just kind of that like foreshadowing. Wow. Um, and like they're similar, but like bear, like Holly doesn't cause death to live in animals, and just all uh, mm. like literally that class. I was just like, what is happening? My brain was exploding. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to ask you um, what is it, what stuck out to you of things that he explained. Are there any others that you remember from the books that that just blew your mind when he was talking about them? Um, there were a few. So I mean, from the first day of that class, he talked about how. Um, Magic is just a vehicle yeah. by which people's choices are personified. Mm. So he's like, really, this book isn't about magic. It's about people and their choices. Um, but in order to take it into this fantasy world, magic is just the vehicle of doing it. But he was like, you could replace magic with, you know, really anything. And the story could kind of stay the same. Mm-hmm. And so kind of for those people that are like, Harry Potter's dangerous because it's going to like introduce people into witchcraft. And it's like, no, right. it's not like literally it's just a vehicle. And uh, a big thing we focused on in his class, which I transferred to my classes that I taught is this idea of giving up power mm. um, or he, he used this fancy word called renunciation, the renunciation of power and essentially taking um, what sometimes is even within your right uh, power that you have the right to grab, yeah. but giving it up for the sake of others or purposefully mm. denying yourself of that power and seeing how um, those choices affect the characters and the people around them. Who do you see that theme played out with? The mo- Is it Harry that kind of personifies that the most? Or are there other characters that you see that in? Uh, I feel like it's a trifecta of Harry, Voldemort, and Dumbledore. Okay. Um, where they constantly are presented with power and you see how they handle it differently. Hmm. Um, and even book one, I think I was listening to y'all's podcast on the first book and I think uh, you all mentioned it, but towards the end when Quirrell talks about how 
uh, he says, you know, I was a foolish young man, full of ridiculous ideas of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Voldemort showed me how wrong I was. There is no good and evil. There's only power and those too weak to seek it. Yeah. And like, that's the end of the first book, but that theme kind of drives throughout. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Dumbledore learned the hard way of when he was in his big seeking power phase with Grindelwald, mm-hmm. it led to the death of his sister. And, right. you know, we hear, we hear from the beginning uh, like in the first couple chapters, even of book one, McGonagall tells Dumbledore, like, you're too humble to take the power that you could have, like, you could have been the Minister of Magic. And right. oftentimes people offer him this power, but he learned the dangers of it. And like, he's someone who couldn't take the power and and handle it well. Like, he kind of knew his limits. So Dumbledore mm. is kind of like the example of, know where your limits are as far as grasping at power and deny yourself for the sake of others. Yeah. Where Voldemort often is the person who continues to seek more and more power to the detriment of others. Hmm. And then Harry at the, you know, throughout the series. And then at the end, he learns that he can have power um, and use it for the good of others. But yeah, um, even at the end, you know, he chooses not to walk around with the elder wand. He chooses to fix his old wand instead. And so yeah. he gives up power once again. Um, and that's what, you know, and, and so it's just, it's such an interesting concept. And especially yeah. if you look at it as, you know, Harry Potter's a book originally or series designed for kids. And so right. if you can teach kids that concept of there's always going to be this, desire to grab at power yeah um but if you can give it up or if you can deny yourself power when it for the sake of others you yourself will be better and then those people around you will be better as well well it's Um, even i'm thinking about now like in where you see these paths cross uh is one we, we talked about it in chamber of secrets you see how uh Voldemort, well, Tom Riddle at that point, the way he even talks to the basilisk, he's like, oh, yeah. Slytherin, greatest of the Hogwarts four. Come, he calls the basilisk in this voice. It's this eerie of power and control, and it just feels sinister and evil. And then you contrast that with Harry, who's kind of embodying Dumbledore's way, right? Because Fox is flying up on his shoulder. Yeah. But I lo- the thing that stuck out to me this time in Chamber of Secrets that I loved that like that's Tom Riddle calling on Slytherin. The way that Harry gets help from Godric Gif- Gryffindor is just saying, help me. And yeah. I was fascinated by that of like Harry is kind of coming from this place of powerlessness and thus receives yeah. help and thus gets the power that's going to allow him to defeat the basilisk. I just thought I was amazed at the difference there between the two ways there, I guess. Cause that's, that's kind of the thing you see crisscrossing throughout is the way when Harry and Voldemort butt heads, you kind of mm-hmm. see their different approaches. Yeah. I mean, down to the very, end, I was like skimming through book seven again, just yeah. trying to remind myself and um, you know, and I remember my professor pointing it out of Harry's, last offer to Voldemort is to try for remorse. Mm. Like he doesn't, what he offers him is remorse and 
if I remember correctly, the way that my professor had phrased it was like, to feel remorse is to um, admit that you've done something wrong. Like yeah. a, a lot of times powerful people blame others or mm -hmm. they don't see anything that they've done wrong, but it takes a humble person, someone who's giving up power essentially to apologize and feel remorse. And so really what Harry is doing is offering him a chance at giving up power yeah. and he doesn't. And then even in their very last spells against each other, um, mm. what Harry does is the Expelliarmus charm. He takes power away from, it's not a killing curse. He's not yeah. like trying to overpower. He's just trying to remove power um, rather than overtake it. Right. Disarm it. Well, even thinking about it, like the Deathly Hallows, when, uh, when Harry has to give himself up, it's, mm -hmm. you see, Voldemort's form of power like Harry sub allows himself to be overtaken by the evil usage of power yes and that that was something I mean even as you were talking I was thinking about that I was like like because you were talking about the the ways they handle power differently I was like well where do they clash and it's in the most climactic moment for Harry and Voldemort Harry actually submits and allows himself to be in a way overcome by Voldemort's power yeah, and he chooses. I was uh, I was looking at that too, because it talks about right before Voldemort, you know, attempts to kill him in the forest, um, and it says, you know, Harry could feel the wand against his chest, but he made no attempt to draw it. Mm. And it's that that yeah, his giving up and his allowing Voldemort to take power. Like he could have used his wand, which is right. the epitome of power in the wizarding world, but he chose not to in that moment even draw it to protect himself which is the interesting and, thing is that voldemort with his own power is actually defeating himself because yeah, he's destroying yeah. the last horcrux uh that was something my friend pointed out to me uh my friend aiden anslet shout out uh that uh in to cross over to lord of the rings um that Gollum ultimately destroys the ring and he talked about mm -hmm. how in the end, evil will destroy even itself. And I yeah. had never thought about that, but Harry Potter, that also holds true that because in the end it is Tom Riddle's own curse that ends him. And he also killed off the Horcrux and Harry that in the end, this mode of power will ultimately destroy itself. That's good. I want to take this class from this <laughs> <laughs> this professor you had, because I, I could have these conversations all day. Uh, what yeah. About, well, yeah. <laughs> listen, I can give him a shout out. He has a YouTube channel, okay. which he records his lectures and posts them on there. His name is Ted Sherman. Okay. And he is what you would think of if a real life Gandalf or a real oh, life Dumbledore wow. walked the earth. He's like big, white, bushy beard raspy voice hmm. just jolly and fun but also super serious i i was obsessed with his class i was obsessed with his youtube channel that's awesome i want to know best wizard <laughs> dumbledore gandalf or obi-wan kenobi oh. Oh no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Under the bus. <laughs> that literally 
Wow. I, of all the questions. <laughs> well, I, was, I knew I was going to try and stump you because you're the first phone interview we've done on the show. So I was like, I got to try and stump her somehow. Oh, man. Okay, so I have two answers because I'm an indecisive person. That's fine. So I I think if I'm going to go, ooh, and now I'm already second-guessing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to go by just pure favorite where it is really hard for me to find flaws in this person, like they're mm-hmm. there, but I easily overlook them, easily Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, okay. That, mm. he, he's got my heart in, like forever and always. I am a big fan of Obi-Wan. Okay. Like, I love the movies, but even there was like a book series of uh, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes, when, Jedi when, Apprentice? When, those I are my books. Those books. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so glad you Obi-Wan. said this because... <laughs> so, I always get self-conscious because I didn't read... Like people talk about as a kid, like reading Narnia, and I enjoyed Narnia. Uh, I'm kind of outing myself here as like I didn't really appreciate Narnia until I was an adult. I didn't read Harry Potter. The book, one of the books I, I read, Redwall was my favorite. But one of the book series I remember reading was those Jedi Apprentice series. Yes, yeah. Because uh, I, I have a vivid memory of I think it was the sixth or seventh book. Because like Xanatos was like Qui Gon's old apprentice. Which spoiler alert, <laughs> anybody that's gonna go back to read Jedi Apprentice. But there was a book where like he came back right at the end of the book before and I ordered the next one on Amazon yeah. and I went to the mailbox every day <laughs> to check and see if it had come. And then I read it in like two days and it was like the seventh book in that series. I am so excited that somebody else enjoyed these. <laughs> oh, yes. It was it was a book series my brother and I actually bonded over. So, really? Um, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was not a big reader, but he loved uh, the Jedi Apprentice series, and I just loved to read growing up, and, yeah. and I liked Star Wars, and so, yeah, it fed to my soul. So, all that to say, Obi-Wan can be forever and always, Okay, but, so that would be like, for me to find a flaw, favorite, wizard-ish in that way, Yeah, but as far as just, like, skill... That you, mm-hmm. oof, this is going to be a real hard one. I think, gosh, I don't know. I think Gandalf is going to win out mm-hmm. by a hair, by yeah. a hair. Yep. Only because there is a level of emotionalism, I think, that we see in Dumbledore and mm-hmm. in Obi-Wan that Gandalf is missing. Yeah. That I think allows him to do what is necessary yeah. Um. So he would make the hard call. I think Gandalf is that person. Like he's gonna make the call and then regret it slash process it later. But mm. like do it in the moment and be fine. And I think that Dumbledore and Obi Wan are gonna like process it as they're doing it, and it's gonna cause them to hesitate in the moments, you know, or, or try and talk it through one more time. And so mm. I'm gonna throw a wrench yeah. in your argument though, because okay. both Gandalf and Dumbledore send someone basically send them to their doom in their own minds. And D- Dumbledore, I haven't, I haven't got that. We haven't got through in the books yet, but I do remember Dumbledore knows that Harry is the Horcrux and he's sending him to his death. Yes. Right. That's a moment where you see Dumbledore do what is necessary and probably go against his heart. So I'm just saying, maybe it's, uh, he does. but, but here's, here's where I would kind of like push back a little bit. 
part, though, gets him in the way of, and and he kind of admits it, but like there are things he probably should have told Harry ahead of time. Mm, okay. That he he wanted to protect. Like yes, he knew that he was going to have to die and all of this. Yeah. But I think that he was still because of that knowledge, trying so hard to protect Harry where he could yeah. that it kind of left Harry in the deficit where Gandalf was kind of like, this is going to be dangerous, yeah. but you're the only one who can do it. Right. You know, <laughs> he was kind of like, right. this is what it is. Yeah. Well, that's, it's interesting you talk about that because something uh, Sarah, my co-host has pointed out a lot is how much Dumbledore tells Harry um, and, it, and it, each each book progressively, he's telling him more and more. But Harry is never satisfied. He he always wants to know more. And it brought up this interesting conversation of in, in the Wizarding world, especially with Dumbledore and Harry, of like, how much can you tell a kid? How much can you tell an eleven year old? How much can you tell yeah. a twelve year old? How much can you tell a thirteen year old? And we were just fascinated by at the end. There's always like the Dumbledore debrief where mm-hmm. he <laughs> tells Harry what's happened, but he's still withholding information. Um, so it was just interesting that you brought that up because it's something we've noticed in about every book. Uh, yeah, and I remember you guys talking about that. I would have to reread. I'm slowly rereading the series, and I'm only on book three right now. Okay. Um, but I would have to check. I just think, like, I like to have all the information before I make a decision yeah. type of person. <laughs> um, but I feel like after book four, Voldemort, or sorry, Dumbledore should have laid it all out. Okay. Just because mm-hmm. it's like he's back. He knew, like, I remember my professor pointing it out when Harry is explaining what happened at the graveyard. Yeah. And Dumbledore specifically asked, did he take your blood? And that was like, I think that I remember my professor saying that's where Dumbledore kind of put the last piece together of like, that's the last piece of the puzzle for the prophecy to come true. Like, Mm. They like, yeah, because it neither says he can beamed. live by either survive. It yeah. said, uh, Dumbledore had a look on his face that was triumphant. And I remember yes. being like, Yeah, oh, that didn't work, that's gonna come back later. Hmm. Yeah, so that was the moment where he realized that, like, I think if I remember correctly, that Harry would be safe if he died, but like now they're they're intrinsically tied beyond just a horcrux, hmm. um, because of that magic, and so, um. But to me, I'm like, if you realize that the like primo evil wizard is officially back in the body yeah. after Harry, he's already been after him for the past 40 years. Yeah. So that's where I would be like, lay everything out on the table. Mm-hmm. Because I think it just could have saved a lot of grief of like, yeah. I don't know. And, and I can just easily talk myself out of it. Because I'm like, yeah. if he knew about Snape, like that could have like ruined everything because mm-hmm. you know somebody was going to say something so i can see both sides of the coin yeah. but i think that's where i'm like i i think you could have told harry more than you did and yeah um but you know that that comes to i i don't have kids but in mm-hmm. teaching i've talked a lot with parents and even um you know in college it's such a time of discovery and so i talk with my students a lot of how much would knowing everything actually prepare you? Like sometimes mm. you really do have to walk and wrestle through difficult things. And, you know, we see a lot of that in book seven where Harry gets frustrated because Dumbledore doesn't tell him. He feels yeah. unprepared. 
Yeah. But it's that wrestling through the not knowing. It's the frustration. And the, he has to, at one point, make a choice to trust that Dumbledore had his best interest at heart, even though he didn't know the full picture. But mm. that makes Harry a more well-rounded person, you know? Right. And, and and I think it allows him to walk to his death in the forest that much more confidently mm. versus like, well, Dumbledore said this was going to happen. All right, sure. Right. Like, so, so again, I can talk myself out of my opinions <laughs> because yeah. I see both sides. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that's what makes it a good story, because if, if it was just like one side of the opinion, if there was no complexity, it, it just wouldn't be an interesting story to read. And I think one of the things that makes Harry Potter great is that it walks it walks you down the middle of all these complex things while also just being an entertaining, great kid story, too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, for you, um, from teaching it, from reading it, what what from Harry Potter has resonated the most with you i i think for me it's a lot but i just the power of choices Hmm. um and just having i want to say like having someone in your corner but maybe it kind of boils down to love like knowing that you are loved and knowing that you're cared for um like Neville is one of my favorite characters in mm. the entire series. And I love it because you see him grow. Like he goes from this, you know, bumbling kind of idiotic wizard mm-hmm. who has no confidence because he grew up in a family that told him he was no good. And, yeah. you know, th- they weren't sure if he was going to have powers for a long time, like to the right. point where they're like throwing him out a window, hoping <laughs> that something would happen, you know? Yeah, and he bounces down like, the street. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to go from that to seeing him in the seventh book where he, by then, he's discovered the things that he's good at. And he understands he is able to use a removal requirement like nobody else before. And mm-hmm. he, you know, ultimately gets to kill the final Horcrux in Nagini because yeah. he just he's just grown so much and he stands. And, you know, they talk about the prophecy could have, could have applied to him or Harry. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think in that you see both of those themes of choices and love mm. play out in Neville because someone else made a choice, right? Voldemort made a choice that then made the prophecy about Harry and mm. not about Neville. And then you also see um, how love grows Neville into this kid that nobody thought was going to be anything. Mm to being like he was the one that stood up to Voldemort at the very end when Voldemort's like Harry is dead join me or die Mm -hmm. and Neville's like fine we're finna die like and I'm gonna fight you (laughs) while we're doing it like you know (laughs) he's like it's a losing battle but I'm gonna go down fighting and choices and the power of that and and also love and the fact that it is you know the one uh, I can go back to this idea of giving up power and mm-hmm. you know it's the one magic the one power that Voldemort doesn't understand and the one that he continues to like dismiss because yeah. love doesn't feel powerful like if you love someone mm-hmm. you are giving up yourself you are giving up yeah. 
your right to decide and your emotions and you're allowing someone to have for lack of a term control over you in certain Mm -hmm. ways like they can hurt your feelings they can make you feel encouraged like all of this so love does that um and it ends up being the thing that you know for a long time Voldemort can't touch harry because of his mother's love right and then he assumes that harry is dead because narcissa loves her son draco and wants to see him Mm. and so she's like yeah harry's dead and they just go off of her word and it's like yeah. he gets taken down by love many a time. <laughs> yeah. Well, even like, and talk about like love as a choice. Okay. So for you, all right. Another hard question. Putting on the spot. Okay. Do you have a ranking of the books in your oh. personal opinion? I do. Um, like I said, I'm rereading them right now, so I feel like it might change a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I'm still pretty sure that three is my favorite. I think right now four and seven are tied in second place for me. Okay. Um, only because I love just how different four is, like yeah. from start to finish. Like it's really that transition book, and I mm-hmm. and I think I was listening to you guys talk about how it is just so much darker and. Like it's that move from childhood to adulthood, and I yeah. enjoy that. But I love just the richness of the symbolism in Book Seven. Mm. Um, so I think I'll forever and always love that one. Um, probably followed by Chamber of Secrets. I really like that one. Yeah. Um, maybe the Sorcerer's Storm, Stone, Half Blood Prince, and then Order of the Phoenix is my least favorite by far. <laughs> okay. What about Order of the Phoenix? Didn't you, didn't you like? Um, it's just so teenage angsty for me. Mm, and I yeah, get it because yeah. it's one of those where the connection between Harry and Voldemort's mind is supposed to be more open and so he's more moody yeah. and just, yeah. but it's just, he's just a punk teen in yeah, that one. So and I'm angry the entire time. And yeah, we're in the middle yeah. of it right now. And I just remember being like, golly, Harry, you're just angry at everything. And there's some people who I like, can appreciate because it is just the teenage 15 year old anger like we all were there and it captures yeah. that but there comes a point where i'm just like now i'm like tired of it <laughs> like yeah we get it harry yeah. you're you're super moody <laughs> and i think you know un- unfortunately or fortunately harry has not been that way up to this point right that it just kind of feels a little bit out of nowhere yeah. and then this book also feels the most self-indulgent if i can say that i love jk yeah. rowling but i feel like like this book could have been at least you know at least a fourth shorter if not a third shorter and i think we could have like hit all the points and done what we need to do and say what we need to say and still been in the story completely yeah it's Um, the longest by far yeah it's not even and i don't think it needed to be yeah and i have my own theories about that but like you know (laughs) what's your theories about it i i feel like by by the time book five it came time for her to like finish writing it and for it to be published. Harry Potter had already been such a huge sensation uh-huh. that she was able to squeak out more pages and be a little bit more self-indulgent right? Um, in that book. Whereas I think if the popularity of Harry Potter hadn't been what it was mm-hmm. at the time that this book came out, 
I don't think the publishers would have let her get away with it. Right. Um, especially when you look at the size difference between five and six. Yeah. Like six is still big, but it just, I think by then she remembered that she had a story that she wanted to tell and yeah. kind of got herself back on track. <laughs> but I just, I'm like, I, five feels a little bit like she let the fame go to her head a little bit too much in book mm. five. And it's like, let me write all the things. And, oh, my book five literally <laughs> broke in half because it was so thick of pages. Uh, now it's in literally two different pieces. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. so thick. Uh, I heard somebody say that they think that they, uh, after, after four people, they were like, Hey, it doesn't matter how many pages this is. People will buy it and read it because right. people want to spend as much time in this world as they can. And yeah. so they just let her run and go. Do whatever. <laughs> yep. Yep. And there are small bits of seven that feel that way too. Yeah. But again, I think because you know, it's the last book and, you kind of can forgive the self-indulgence a little mm -hmm. bit more. Yeah. But five, you're still like, man, we are still in the middle of this. Like, yeah. why? <laughs> yeah, I've got two whole books after this. <laughs> I'm going to take yeah. a nap. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rachel, this has been so, such a fun conversation. Thanks for hopping on here with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I love talking about Harry Potter. Yeah. If anybody knows me or sees me ever, I walk around with Harry Potter shirts and I've got the wands and the sweatshirts and yes. I even got a tat. I have a couple of tattoos, like, you know, really? it's, it's a problem. It's a, it's an obsession. Wait, what's, sure. what's your house? Uh, I am a proud Ravenclaw. Oh, so. okay. Well, I, I'm yeah. a Hufflepuff over here. I was hoping you were one of us. I'm still looking for some other no. ones. Oh, trust me. There's so many Hufflepuffs. Amen. And Best kind of people. I have, I have a slight <laughs> beef with you not being proud to be a Hufflepuff. I, I go back and forth. Like it's sometimes I do like I was really talking smack in book three when we beat Gryffindor and Quidditch and was my co-host is a Gryffindor and I was letting her know, but yeah. I have days where I'm proud of it and days where not so much. <laughs> Listen, at least you're not a Ravenclaw. Okay. I have a whole theory on why Ravenclaw is the worst house to be in. Really? Worse and than so, Slytherin? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because by nature of being a Slytherin, you are proud to be a Slytherin. Okay. Like Slytherins love being Slytherin. Right. Because that's the most Slytherin thing you can do. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it, they're going to be proud about it. Right. Pride it is a thing they do. Yeah. Right. And so therefore it's a pretty good house to be in. And then obviously you've got Gryffindor. They're like the protagonist yeah, of Harry the story. Potter, they're the, the best, heroes. Yeah, yeah, and then Rowling has said that Hufflepuff is her favorite house. Like it is oh, a house really? that accepts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's gone on a record saying that, that was her favorite house, and she mm. thought she'd be a Hufflepuff, and like uh, you know, it, even one of her, us, one of us. <laughs> yeah, her choosing of Cedric being a Hufflepuff was not on accident. Like that first sacrifice, being mm. a Hufflepuff, kind of elevated that house. And I'm like, tell me why. This, the house that's supposed to be the wisest and the smartest, they're always last in the cup house. Like, <laughs> we have Luna, which is cool. Luna's I great, though, but Luna. it's like, yeah. we have like nobody else cool. Like, nobody cares uh, about Ravenclaw. Nobody cares but about Cho okay. Chang or. <laughs> yeah, no, she broke Harry's heart. You know, forget her. Like, <laughs> she like. She kissed him and cried over Cedric at the same time. It's like, girl, make up your mind. Like, like nobody cares. <laughs> oh, 
All that to say, I am a proud Ravenclaw, but we are the worst house to be in. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't think of a better way to end the conversation. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, that was our interview with Rachel McKelvey. It was so much fun. I cannot tell you how excited I was to finally hear somebody who had read the Jedi Apprentice Star Wars books like I did as a kid. Just a wonderful little nerd moment for me. Well, y'all, thanks for joining us. We will see you next time as we jump back into our Summer of Potter. Thanks.